Welcome to The Den Tapes, a podcast dedicated to the reading of horror fiction. I'm your host, Tony. So go ahead, sit back, relax, and let's see if we can give you a case of the heebie-jeebies. This week's episode contains some graphic, explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. It's the Halloween special episode. Today's story is called Stuck Between Two Times. Gabby squeezed Dougie's hand as they pulled up in front of the apartment building. His car puttering as it came to a slow stop, both of them looking out the window at the red brick edifice that was dimly lit with various orange decorative lights for Halloween. The breeze outside caused the limbs of the big elm tree to dance in the streetlight, making four eerie darting shadows on their laps as they sat quietly watching a woman move boxes out of the front door. You seen her before? Gabby asked. Dougie shook his head no and returned the question. Mm-mm. Have, have you? Gabby softly said, I haven't. I have not. They gave each other a quick peck, a sweet kiss while caressing each other's faces. Dougie thought how he couldn't wait for the others to know that he and Gabby had finally hooked up. How it had been 15 years since high school when he had first formed his crush on her and how all their friends were rooting for them to finally be a couple. Gabby let out a deep breath. Ah, well, let's get to it. I bet everything will be fine. Dougie agreed, and they each stepped out of the red station wagon on either side. The doors squeaked while each of them were closed. As they walked past the boxes the lady had been moving, Dougie bent down and pulled a book from one of them. He lightly tugged on Gabby's arm, stopping her from going into the building so he could show her. As he handed it to her, she read the title out loud. Huh. Stuck between two times. She shrugged her shoulders, handed it back to him, and motioned with her head they had better get inside. Dougie tossed the book back into the box and followed her in. Hand to God! My mom has a cousin named Mike Myers. Dougie boasted over his friend's laughter. She swears this movie came out when he was in high school and it caused him to be like the class weirdo. Only because his name was the same as Michael Myers. His friends laughed even harder. Trent pointed out, Dude, but high school kids are the worst. Remember how badly we got picked on back then? Each of their faces turned from smiling to slightly frowning, as if Trent had ruined the mood. They were all huddled together in Dougie's apartment, sitting on the floor in the living room atop trash bags to shield the floor from the mess they were making. You know guys, I'm really glad you wanted to do this tonight, he said with a tone of warmth that only comes when surrounded by friends that show up during a time of need. He stood up, the plastic underneath him crinkling, and announced, all right, it's time. Let's see him. 
Everyone in the group cackled as they turned their pumpkins around to reveal what they had carved as the movie Halloween played softly in the background on Dougie's TV. Holy shit, that one is awesome, he said as he gave Gabby a high five, commending her on a job well done. Gabby was the one that got everyone together. Dougie expressed to her that ever since he had gotten let go from the sawmill, he hadn't quite been feeling himself. He dodged hanging out with everyone because he felt as if he was some sort of failure. Anxiety had gotten the better of him, so much so that when plans were made, instead of canceling, he would just not show up. When he told Gabby a few days prior that he really wished they could all get together and carve pumpkins like they used to do in their 20s, she jumped at the chance to gather the group together and have Dougie host, like he always used to. They had rented a stack of tapes from Blockbuster and ordered in a bunch of pizza. Bart purchased the pumpkins from Clary's supermarket and used his truck to bring them over. Justine provided the beer, and Gabby made sure that there was enough pot to share a few bowls before the evening was over. She was elated to see how happy it all made Dougie. He really needed a night like this, in her words, to get the stick out of his ass and have some fun. Trent, who supplied all the necessary cutlery for the carving, deemed himself the winner of the pumpkin carving contest, and the group tended to agree. His makeshift, snarling wolfman face was a real work of art. Ah, shit. Did anybody grab candles? Gabby asked, causing the exchange of, Did you? I didn't. Looks throughout the group. Dougie got everyone's attention. Hey, it's no big deal. I'll just run down to Clary's. They're still open. Betty always keeps it open on Halloween just in case any of the families in town need a last-minute haul of candy. He grabbed his denim jacket from the rack next to the TV where Michael Myers was lurking in the shadows as Jamie Lee Curtis's character tiptoed through the house looking for him. Hey, I'll come along. You shouldn't go alone, Gabby muttered as she scooted her pumpkin away from where she was sitting crisscross applesauce. Everyone in the group knew Dougie and Gabby had danced around being an item since they were teens. So it wasn't a surprise when Trent started in with Dougie and Gabby sitting in a tree. She rolled her eyes and smacked Trent on the arm before he could start spelling out kissing. The group laughed and waved as Gabby hurried Dougie out through the front door. They heard Dougie's 1986 Subaru wagon pull away as they began eating pizza and lighting up a bowl. That was the last time they saw Gabby and Dougie. Halloween of 1995, the night Gabby and Dougie never made it back from Clary's supermarket with the candles for their pumpkins. Trent, Bart, and Justine did not go looking for them until it had been an hour after they should have returned. The three of them assumed Gabby finally made her move, having Dougie park in some dark corner of some parking lot to make out. They decided at 11.30 that night to go looking for their friends. But when they couldn't find them, they returned to the apartment, hoping they had come back. They found the door open, but Dougie and Gabby were nowhere to be found. Clary's was a five-minute drive down Bolt Street, but Dougie's car was never found. Everyone had a take on what had happened, the most popular being that Dougie had finally professed his love for Gabby, and she turned him down. 
He then got so mad about it that he killed her and took off into the night. Both Gabby's and Dougie's parents held out hope that it was just some awful Halloween prank, and the two would show up a few days later telling everybody, Ha ha, we got you! A few eccentric journalists over in Cincinnati claimed a portal to another dimension opened on Bolt Street that night, citing some disappearances from decades earlier that occurred around the same time of day on the same day, each ten years apart. But that was never proven to be a viable explanation. Another reporter from Columbus claimed it was all a giant hoax, a publicity stunt by Fox to up the popularity of their hit show, The X-Files. No one knew what the hell had happened that night. It was slightly comforting for friends and family of the two 30-somethings that up and vanished when stories about how they would return or at least be found would pop up in the newspaper. Bart and Trent helped Dougie's parents clear out his apartment a month later, just after Thanksgiving. Justine pitched in and did all the tidying up, mopping, scrubbing, bleaching. The apartment sat vacant until after the first of the year, when a man named Charles Lafferty moved in. He was a new professor at the local college and just so happened to be completely non-superstitious. The fact that a couple of people had gone missing on Halloween night from that apartment didn't faze him one bit. He was slated to teach creative writing at the university. This came after a work of fiction that had landed on a few bestsellers list all but ruined his life. A rise to mediocre notoriety and the eventual mental breakdown from drinking his weight in vodka every day was cause enough for him to realize that his true calling in life was to teach, not be a star. Hiding out in a town tucked away in the hills of southern Ohio was exactly the kind of thing he was looking for. His first night in the apartment proved to be problematic. He didn't remember packing another unopened bottle of Mr. Boston's, but he wasn't too mad about it when he found it at the bottom of a box that contained unsold copies of his novel. The cap effortlessly twisting its way off the top, the liquid sweet, satisfying, and with the right amount of sting, just like he remembered it. A two-year streak of sobriety gone in one single upturn of that bottle. Each night after, Charles found himself dipping into his old vice. He would stumble, pacing back and forth in front of a typewriter, talking aloud to himself, spinning brilliant storylines that never solidified into ink on paper. He became known as the town drunk very quickly, in fact. The college kept issuing warning after warning when he'd show up to class half-cocked and reeking of cheap booze. He managed to finish another novel just in time to be let go from the school just under three years of working there for being outright shit-faced during one of his lectures. That's what made it so easy for the cops to dismiss his claim on October 31st, 1998 that Dougie and Gabby strolled into his apartment with a bag full of candles from Clary's supermarket. According to Charles Lafferty, his evening began like any other, paper in the typewriter, his hands hovering over the keys, the bottle of Mr. Boston staring at him from the far corner of the desk. It was when he tried to squeeze one last drink out of that bottle that he figured it was time for a second. He stood, knocking over the chair, swaying towards the door when he noticed the doorknob was turning from the other side. 
Through squinted eyes, he watched as the door flung open and two smiling, very happy people came through the threshold. The male had lipstick smudged on his neck. That the two seemed to glow the way that new lovers do. Charles was very adamant about that detail. He introduced himself as the new tenant, to which Dougie looked at Gabby and asked what kind of dumb prank she had pulled on him. He seemed impressed at how quickly Trent, Bart, and Justine had cleared all of his stuff out and staged all the, what he called, old man stuff, along with the homeless man in front of them. Charles was taken aback when Dougie pushed him out of the way, calling him an old drunk, demanding to know what they had done with all of his stuff. When Charles called the cops, the two intruders took off quickly and jumped into a red station wagon. He could hear them discussing their confusion on how something like this could happen in the 10 minutes they had been gone. Then the car sped off, and the taillights disappeared into the night. The cops took his statement, but they warned him that if this was some terrible attempt at digging up a past tragedy the town had just only begun to heal from, that he was in for one hell of a ride down to the station. He swore to them it was not. Even though they could smell the vodka on his breath, they were sure he was convinced two people had come into his apartment. Whether or not those two people were the missing Dougie and Gabby from October 31st, 1995, that was undetermined. In late October 2005, Charles Lafferty found himself yet again sober with a new title out, his third bestseller on shelves across the country. He was wrapped in a blanket on the couch in the apartment that had become his writing sanctuary. His old typewriter on a shelf like a relic from another time period behind him in the corner, it had been replaced by a laptop on the coffee table in front of him. The keys clicked as he typed through the second act of his fourth book. He paused to look at the clock on the wall and decided it was time for a break. He had skipped lunch and found himself very hungry, craving a rotisserie chicken from the Kroger's down the street. The Kroger's that was once Clary's supermarket before old Betty Clary sold it. He unwrapped the blanket from around himself and sauntered to the table next to the front door where his keys laid in a bowl along with spare change, receipts, his cell phone, and anything else he would clear from his pockets when he returned home. He snapped his fingers and turned back to the computer. Ah, better save my work, he muttered softly to himself. As he pulled the door closed, his hand ran down the wall to find the light switch. He watched as the apartment went mostly dark, dimly lit by the screen of his laptop. At Kroger's, he was sure to be quick, in and out. But the deli where they kept the chicken he was pining over was just past the shelves where they stocked all the liquor. He tried not to stop, but he couldn't help himself from hovering in front of the portion that had the bottles of cheap vodka peering down at him as if they were smiling, welcoming him to wrap his hand around one of their cool glass surfaces to be taken home and enjoyed. He shook his head, got the idea to dissipate, and continued on to the counter where he asked for a fresh chicken, which he added a side of mashed potatoes with gravy and a helping of stewed green beans. The kid serving him at the counter had a red bandana on and a very cheap-looking wig. Charles tried not to point it out, but the kid noticed. Rambo, he said. Charles looked at the employee, puzzled, and asked, uh, pardon me? The kid laughed. I'm, I'm Rambo. It's Halloween, man. Boss said we could dress up tonight. Charles smirked and retorted with, Ah, fine film. 
that first blood was. The kid smiled and pointed toward the front of the store. You're going to pay up front. Have a great night, sir. Charles nodded as he took the food from the kid. Happy Halloween, kiddo, he said with a wink and a head nod. As he pulled out of the parking lot, the radio became fuzzy. In and out it went a few times before it went completely silent. He smacked the front of the console a few times, the light flickered, and the NPR show he had been listening to returned. But it wasn't the same show. It was a different host with a different guest. He chalked it up to the station, making a mistake, and turned the dial to power down the radio. The knob clicked, and the speakers went quiet again. He gently pushed down on the gas pedal and had to jerk the car to an immediate stop when another car seemed to appear out of nowhere in front of him. Three people in the car, two men and one woman, gave him a damning look. Charles raised a hand in apology. They seemed unbothered by it and continued on at a slow pace, looking to both sides of the street as if they were looking for somebody. (sighs) Probably lost their little trick-or-treater, he scoffed as he turned onto Bolt Street towards home. He parked under the elm tree and gathered his meal. The wind blew when he opened the door and stood, giving him a good chill. He should have grabbed a bigger coat, he thought. But it didn't seem like it was this cold out when he had left. A few leaves fell into his hair from the towering tree above him. As he brushed them away, he noticed he had left a light on in the apartment. Huh, that's strange. I remember turning that off, he whispered to himself. Shrugging it off and convincing himself he had, in fact, not turned the light off, he opened the door to the building, stood for a few seconds in the warmth of the hallway, and then swiftly scooted towards his apartment door. The key slid in, but the lock was not engaged. Man, I must have been really hungry, he chuckled to himself. When he opened the door, he gasped as his cell phone dropped to the floor where the bowl and table should have been. At first, he thought maybe he had wandered into his neighbor's apartment instead of his own. It reeked of marijuana. The furniture was not his. There were pizza boxes on the kitchen counter, and there were five freshly carved pumpkins sitting on the floor on top of ripped up garbage bags. Charles panicked, rushed out of the apartment and to his car. Digging in his pockets, he realized he had left his cell phone in the apartment. Not wanting to return inside in case someone was meaning to harm him, He sped off and found the closest place where he could use a phone. It just so happened to be the Chuck Wagon, a dive bar he used to frequent during the composition of his second novel. He rushed in, the Kroger's bag still in his hand, and asked the bartender if he could use the phone behind the bar. A girl sitting on a stool at the bar asked Charles why he drove all the way to Athens when Clary's was right up the street. He assumed the girl was just mistaken or just drunk. I need to call the police, but non-emergency, he said to the bartender. The guy nodded and handed him the phone, gave him the number for the non-emergency line, and turned the music down on the jukebox so Charles could make his call. He didn't want to sound like a complete lunatic, so he motioned towards the door as a means to ask the barkeep if he could take the phone outside. Might not reach all the way out there, but go ahead, the man said. Charles quickly returned to the sidewalk and called the number he was given. He told the woman on the other end of the line how someone had broken into his apartment and left a bunch of pumpkins as some sort of crazy Halloween prank he had presumed. When he gave her the address, she asked, Wait, isn't that the same place where those two people earlier disappeared from? Charles was puzzled by her asking about a case from ten years ago, but answered her question 
Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, it is. She assured him they'd send someone over just as the phone fizzled out. It popped and crackled, then the call went dead. He returned inside, rubbing his temples. When he finally looked up, the first thing he noticed was that the bartender wasn't the same man that had given him the phone. Maybe he had arrived right after shift change, he thought to himself. The second thing he noticed was that the music was much louder, and it wasn't the song that was playing when he went outside. As Monster Mash played at an excruciatingly high volume over the speakers, he also noticed the girl who had been sitting there before was gone too. He handed the new fella behind the bar the phone, and the man looked very much confused by it. Thanks, Charles yelled, trying to communicate with the bartender through the barrage of music. The man nodded. When Charles turned to the door to leave, the guy tossed the phone into a lost and found box behind the bar and returned to pouring drinks. Charles sat in his car under the elm tree, eating the once warm meal he had bought earlier, awaiting the cop's arrival. After an hour, he thought maybe they had parked out back and were waiting for him inside. But no one was there when he walked into the hallway, but the door to his apartment was now closed. He thought maybe the cops were inside. Wrapping his fingers around the knob, he twisted. It was locked. Had they come and gone without talking to him? Furious with that prospect, he entered the key into the knob and flung the door open. He gasped yet again, for this time his apartment was exactly how he had left it. Light off, the dim light from his computer screen giving the room a low grayish blue haze. No pumpkins, no pizza, no smell of weed. And in the bowl, on the table next to the door, sat his cell phone. Retrieving it, he called the number the bartender had given him, and this time a man answered. Charles explained that he had called earlier and no one had shown up to assist him. The man on the other end told Charles there was no record of him calling and asked him if he was all right. As he looked around and realized there was going to be no way to explain his way out of the situation, he told the man on the phone that he was just fine. He thanked him and hung up. He couldn't think of anything else to do other than sit down and continue writing. To do the one thing he knew that would be able to keep his mind off of what had just happened. He wrote deep into the night. As the sun came up, he was nearing the finishing point of his story. And as if nothing strange had happened the night before, Charles decided to forget about the whole thing. Over the following few weeks, he finished the book. He was proud to announce to his agent that he thought it was his best work to date. Charles Lafferty passed away from liver failure on October 11th, 2015. He had become a recluse, a mockery of talent, yet again, the town drunk. When his fourth book failed miserably, he took to writing about all the theories surrounding the disappearance of the two adults on Halloween of 1995. The first of the series, entitled The Portal of Bolt Street, covered wild recollections of people losing time on that stretch of road where Gabby and Dougie went missing. The second of the series, entitled A Confession Abroad, 
was a memoir detailing the relationship he garnered during 2009 being a pen pal with serial killer Amos Diggs, who had confessed to murdering the two back in 1995 as a part of a deal to be retried to get himself off of death row. It was never substantiated and Charles was adept at disproving Diggs' confession. The third book did better than the first two, but not by much. He named it Stuck Between Two Times, and it came off as an apology. Detectives became very interested in Charles Lafferty when that book hit the shelves, even though it didn't sell but a few thousand copies. They claimed that due to a confession abroad, mainly dealing with outing Amos Diggs as a liar, it seemed very peculiar that Charles Lafferty's last published work would offer up an apology for never finding out why or how Gabby and Dougie had disappeared. That, in the detective's opinion, it read more like the confession of Charles Lafferty. Posthumously, Charles Lafferty was deemed the most viable suspect in the disappearance of Gabby and Dougie. This was due to the retesting of evidence in 2016. Part of that evidence was a fingerprint log from the night Gabby and Dougie went missing. Six sets were found, five determined to be those five people present on October 31st, 1995. The sixth set was inconclusive until it was tested against Charles Lafferty's prints. They had them on file for a DUI back in 1999, and it was indeed a match. They had lifted the sixth set of prints from the doorframe, the doorknob, and the door itself. Charles Lafferty's estranged daughter was left everything per his will. She spent a few days in that sleepy small town tucked away in the hills of southern Ohio packing up his things. She found herself not at all astonished with how uninteresting her father had turned out to be. She only remembered him as a drunk. When her mother had taken her to be with her side of the family, he didn't put up much of a fight. The girl was only seven years old then. Her mother always told her that her father didn't want her because she would get in between him and his bottle. She sold his old typewriter to a hipster couple up in Cleveland. His endless collection of books she donated to the local library. His furniture she had steam cleaned and driven to the closest women's shelter. His clothes went to a thrift store. And all the other stuff she planned on dropping off and getting a little bit of cash for at a vintage department store on the outskirts of Pittsburgh. The last thing she had to take care of was the 15 boxes of unsold copies of all of his books. She figured she might be able to get a little bit of cash for them at used bookstores across the tri-state area. She pulled the boxes out onto the sidewalk in front of the apartment building, but she wanted just one last look through that old shabby apartment before she left for good. Hoping maybe he had hidden a million dollars under a loose floorboard or stashed a bond for a few hundred thousand bucks in the ceiling. There was no such luck, no treasure like that to be found. She dropped the final box of books onto the lawn out front. As she turned to go lock the place up, an old red Subaru approached slowly and parked on the street under the elm tree. She smiled as she watched the couple inside kiss. She thought about waving, but then the thought of, well, then again, the reason they're probably sitting in the car and not getting out is 
because I'm old drunk Chuck Lafferty's daughter, they probably don't want to even talk to me. She looked down at the boxes below and said softly into the cool night air, world-renowned author of Stuck Between Two Times. As she turned to the entrance, she rolled her eyes. She howled at her dead dad's expense while the door slowly closed behind her. This story was tracked, scored, mixed, and mastered at the Great Divide Den. Thank you for listening. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another case of the Hebe Jeebies. <laughs> <laughs>